Welcome to the Giveology Impact Series podcast, in which we share the experiences and inspirations of social entrepreneurs and change makers around the world in education. We have Joyce Meng here today. We are delighted to have Sarah Burge and Kate Jenkins from Nanubai Education Foundation here as our honored guests. For more than a decade, Nanubai has worked to provide scholarships and access to key education resources in rural India. As an introduction to our guests, Sarah Burge is from Northern Vermont and studied English literature at the University of Chicago. She became involved with Nanubai in 2011 as part of her master's work in sustainable development. Sarah currently works at the Vermont Agency of Education and believes strongly in education as a tool for socioeconomic equity. Kate Jenkins joined the Nanubai team in 2012 and served as executive director from 2014 to 2016 and remains an active member of Nanubai's board. She's currently the senior director of central operations at, at FIMRC, an NGO that aims to close the healthcare gap in communities in developing countries. Once again, thank you guys so much for taking the time to speak with us today. My pleasure. Great. Absolutely. Great. Yeah, to start off, can you guys talk a little bit about the history and the founding mission of Nanubai? Um, yep, absolutely. So Nanubai was founded in 2003-2004 by Raj Shah. Raj Shah is an Indian-American who spent summers in his dad's village in rural India and was really kind of thrown by the difference that it makes where you grow up and what kind of education you have access to. The village of Kadod, which is in Gujarat, is actually where his dad is from and where our organization was ultimately founded. Um, he worked very closely with Principal Mahita Sir to found the organization and to kind of guide our earliest projects, which focused more closely on getting teachers into classrooms, um, India has not necessarily a teacher shortage, but a resource shortage. So how do we get teachers into classrooms? How do we get them excited about teaching? How do we make the curriculum accessible to students? Um, those were many of Nanibai's first projects. We started very small with bringing a few Americans to actually work in those classrooms. And then in 2013, we did some kind of program review and um, soul searching, which is what, uh, always a, an interesting time for an NGO. But we came to the conclusion that it was better for us to focus our resources on helping students themselves continue into their education. So we kind of rebuilt the Nanibai Scholarship Program. The first class of scholars will be graduating this year. We have 106 active scholars. We'll recruit another 70 this year. And that is some of the key history Great. And since you're founding, what are some of the key program highlights and accomplishments of the organization? And given all the work that you do, can you share some of the, some stories that encapsulate your work and mission? 
Sure, this is Sarah. I can jump in on that. Um, so the scholars program that Kate's talking about with the 106 girls currently in college has just been incredible, both in terms of the fact that we have girls who would otherwise not have gone to college, graduating and moving into the workforce. Um, so on the large scale, you know, that's wonderful. And on a more micro level, um, I spent last summer in India and just meeting the girls and their families and their stories. I remember going out to visit a family and it was like a four-hour bus ride and then an hour in a rickshaw and then like hiking through a river because it was the monsoon. And when we got to their house, they didn't have enough chairs. They had to go to the neighbors and borrow chairs because they owned one chair. Um, you know, and so getting to meet the families, even with the language barriers, you know, seeing someone's grandmother, like, grab your hand and thank you because her granddaughter is going to college um, is, is really moving. So I think that there's the large-scale impact of what we do, and then there's also the individual human stories that are, are very powerful. Mm -hmm. yeah, no, that's really inspiring. And um, today's podcast series is focused on impact assessment and the ways that organizations tackle the challenge of measuring impact in the field. And, you know, this is clearly an area that you, Sarah, have studied, and, you know, we're really in excited to pick your brain on the subject. So for Nanubai, what are some of the key qualitative and quantitative metrics that you look at in terms of figuring out your overall impact in the communities? Sure. So this is one of my favorite topics. So feel free to cut me off because I will talk about it for hours. Um, so firstly, it's, it's really interesting to do this kind of work in India because a lot of the data collection tools that we might take for granted in the States are just so new and, and sort of culturally jarring. I remember trying to do a Likert scale, which is like, do you strongly agree, slightly agree, disagree? And no one could do it. It was like a new idea. And so it failed terribly. But we have developed some really good metrics over time. Um, a lot of those are around who we let into the program. Kate can go into a little more detail later. We have an elaborate system to decide who will make a good scholar, who really needs these scholarships. Um, and then in terms of the assessment of our impact, we have some quantitative stuff, which is obviously how many girls graduate from college. Um, right now, we're looking at like 99, 98% of our scholars are getting out of college. Um, and the small percentage who don't, there's, you know, a family emergency or a health thing. Um, and then some other things we're looking at are how many of them get jobs, what time frame do they get jobs in, um, what's the salaries that they're looking at. Um, and then we're also looking at, um, in terms of qualitative data, doing exit surveys. Do they feel that we helped them as much as they needed? Are there things we could be doing for them that we're not anticipating? Um, longer term, we'll be looking at how many scholars stay involved. One of my goals would be to someday hire a scholar to work for us. Um, and then even longer term than that, we're looking at things like average age of marriage, um, the level of education that these girls' children will ultimately receive. Um, and then on a larger scale, what are the community attitudes? Because another one of our goals is to help shift community attitudes towards girls' education. So. That's challenging to measure, um, and it's very qualitative, but it's certainly an important thing. Mm -hmm. so. That's really great. Um, actually, since you mentioned community attitudes towards girls' education, for those less familiar with India and the current education system and the environment surrounding it, what is the current community attitude? That's a great question. Um, I have I, This isn't an original line, but 
uh, something that helps me understand India is remembering that it's not one country, it's a bunch of countries that happen to have one government. So a lot of the statistics coming out of India are really dire. Uh, in a lot of places, girls are denied education, um, you know, even to the extent of, like, violence and things like that. But it really varies state to state. So where we are in Gujarat, there's pretty positive attitudes towards girls' education, and the government, the state government of Gujarat has done a lot to get K-12 education going. They had a program called um, Sarva Shiksa Abayan, which was like a celebration of education. So we have a lot of girls now who are going up through 12th grade, and their parents didn't go to school at all. Or if they did, you know, their father went up through 8th grade. But college is a different proposition because that costs money. Whereas K-12 education is so cheap that generally anyone can afford it. So we're really hoping that we can, uh, you know, capitalize on what the government there has already done around K-12 education and get that momentum to carry up into tertiary education. And then longer term, as we look into expanding to other states, I think we will have to focus more on tackling community attitudes around girls' education, which might be more negative. Uh-huh. Yeah, and um, clearly the president of India today, um, very reform-minded and progressive, came from Gujarat. So, yeah, that legacy kind of spills yeah. over. Um, and just in general, I know uh, Kate mentioned earlier the issue of resources in schools. Uh, just to help contextualize, um, you know, K-12 education, like you mentioned, is free and publicly provided. But what is the state of the quality of the existing public education programs? Ooh, um, you know, I can only speak to what I saw, but I have been in a lot of public schools in the areas of Gujarat that we operate in. I actually taught uh, or co-taught an English class in one of our partner schools for a year, and things aren't great. Um, teacher absenteeism is a huge problem. Um, you know, even in terms of textbooks, class numbers were really shocking. I've taught public school in the States for now on and off for about a decade, and there would be classes in India of 80 to 100 kids, which at that point you're not teaching, you're delivering a sermon. So I think that scarcity of resources is huge, and one of the biggest resources that we need is, is more teachers and more quality teachers. So I think that, you know, from an American or a Western standpoint, the difference would be really stark. You would have, you know, anywhere from 40 to 100 children sitting on wooden benches in a room, um, with, you know, no books or pencils or paper, so. Mm -hmm. Great, and no, it's helpful to understand. And going back to um, impact evaluation and assessment, how does Donubai select beneficiaries for its programs? So Kate uh, okay, and, oh yeah, Kate, take it away, because you developed this system. Sorry. Um, yes, I will try again. So we actually have a four-step process um, every December, our project managers go out into the field. They visit 50 to 60 local high schools. They actually talk to principals and students and teachers and explain the program and how it works and what college can do for you. Um, we spend a couple months then collecting completed application forms. Application forms look at academic performance, they look at family income, family resources. Um, all of these things are then quantified into 
what we call our application tracker, um, where each girl receives a preliminary score. And so then we usually get, I'd say the average is about 500 applications in Gujarat alone. Um, and we expect that we'll get to 500 applications in our new project site Rajasthan eventually. But of these 500, we will call about half of them. We call it the top 50%. And we'll ask for their board seat number, which is for their 12th exam. Um, India doesn't do grades per se. They do, like there's no GPA. There is a an exam in 10th grade and an exam in 12th grade. And the one in 10th grade determines what stream that you will study in. And the one in 12th grade determines whether you graduate, where you'll rank on the merit list for getting into programs. Um, it's a, a major high stakes winner take all test that most students spend an entire year cramming for. Um, so we'll call and we'll get their seat numbers. Then with the seat numbers in place, once the actual um, scores are released, we usually call about the top 50% of those girls. You bring them in for an interview. Um, the interview focuses on what are your goals? What kind of support do you have in your family? Um, what are you prepared to do to excel in school? You know, we also look at things like if a family is missing one or more parents. This is Sarah. I'll just jump in. So that's, that's what Kate has outlined is essentially our process. Um, and then our ground team does the interviews. So this is really the busiest time of our year. It's an incredible amount of work, <laughs> an incredible amount of data system uh, sifting. And our ground team will actually, um, I can't remember off the top of my head how many kilometers they end up driving, but they cover an incredible amount of land to go and go to these rural high schools and give out applications and help promote us. Um, and so we're in the midst of that right now. But another wrinkle is that when we're selecting our Givology scholars for our Givology partnership, they're looking for other things like an ability to communicate with donors in America, um, sort of an outgoing nature. So there's even another layer of scanning that we do when we're selecting scholars. So it's a, it's a really huge process, and it's one that we're always tweaking and refining to make sure that we're getting scholars who have a balance of need and potential for academic success. Mm -hmm. That's great. And uh, just on that balance and um, being able to strike a good, um, you know, a coordination of those two different aspects, which could also be potentially conflicting in different situations. Do your applicants typically, the, uh, sorry, the beneficiaries that you end up s selecting, do they have any demographic differences from the broader community that is that you see in, in when you look at your admission criteria? That's, that's kind of a hard question to answer. I think if you were going to look at the set of girls in Gujarat and Rajasthan who are in college, the big difference is that most of our students are from rural areas. Um, and most of them, I believe about 66% um, are what's called um, scheduled tribes, which means that they're from groups that have historically been oppressed. So 
they're sort of in the caste system. They're not like the Dalit or the quote-unquote untouchable caste. They're tribal. They're indigenous people. And India-wide, 0.9% of tribal women receive a college education. So that would be the huge difference that we're seeing is that most of our beneficiaries are from these um, indigenous tribes, and they don't really have access to college. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, that, I think, you know, you guys have done tremendous work in the community, and, you know, we're, you know, we're, uh, we have been very excited to support your work. And uh, just on that, like, um, when you benchmark exit opportunities for your students, you know, compared to, you know, the typical trajectory that's taken by girls in, in those indigenous communities, what are the differences that you see? a great question. Um, So right now, as Kate mentioned earlier, we're really having our first crop of scholars graduate on math. We've had a handful graduate. I think only like one or two who did sort of um, short-term nursing programs. But we haven't really, it's an area that we're concerned about. And so we're sort of trying to prepare for it. So I don't really have an answer about what the outcomes are yet. Um, But one thing that we see is that a lot of our scholars end up going into the science fields, like a lot of them are becoming nurses or homeopathic doctors or pharmacists. Um, And so I, you know, I'm not sure what the correlation is between where they're from and their desire to go into the more science fields, but I know in the interviews that we do with our scholars, a lot of them talk about wanting to give back and a lot of them see healthcare as a way to do that really directly. Um, I remember we have a scholar named Mega, who's also a gifted poet, and her little sister is actually um, disabled because she had polio as a child. And Mega is going to be a nurse, and she sent me a picture of her out in a remote town um, doing polio vaccinations. And so I just, that always stuck with me, was it like she's really making a difference in an area that had negatively affected her family. Um, But bigger picture, one thing that we're concerned about at Nanubai is that because most of our scholars are from scheduled tribes, um, and many of them are from what's referred to as scheduled castes um, or other castes that have sort of been oppressed, is we're worried about them facing discrimination in the workforce. So in order to combat that, we're doing a couple things. We're doing some soft skills job training workshops before they graduate, so they're sort of a little more prepared. Um, and we've also partnered with an organization that Kate found out of Delhi called She Rose. And it's a network of female mentors who are in the professional world um, and are probably coming from, you know, a higher socioeconomic status. Um, and these women are willing to develop relationships with our scholars and sort of help them along. So, yeah, so one of the things we're concerned about is that our scholars may face discrimination in the workplace when they exit, um, but we're trying to do everything we can to uh, prepare for that so that it doesn't happen. Yeah, no, that's a that's an important issue. And um, in 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 regards to you know data and the way that Nanubai has used data, I'm curious, like you know, in looking at your program, and you know, I know this is a year where you're going to get more data in mass and more more benchmarking and more opportunity to gauge the impact over the many years, but. Have, has the use of data or the, the collection of data impacted the way that you've designed your programs? Um, it has. Uh, you know, Kate talked a little bit about our initial programming years when we were really just sort of sending people over to teach English and doing smaller projects. Um, and we sort of realized that 
they weren't projects that we could even really collect data on. So how could we tell if they were working? And you know, we collect massive amounts of data on every scholar. Like we could tell you what percentage of them live in the traditional clay houses versus a modern built house and how many water buffalo per family is the average um, and all of those things. And so we have these massive amounts of data and it's been really great to use them to drive our programming. So for example, the science thing, we've noticed that a lot of scholars who have done high science in high school tend to be more successful. Um, and so we're talking about in the future, is that something we want to focus on a little bit more? Or we've noticed that scholars who graduated and have gone into nursing are making pretty good salaries right out the gate. So do we want to encourage that more? Um, one interesting thing I found when I was doing our monitoring and evaluation program last summer was that many of our scholars are the oldest in their families. So they're the first child to graduate from high school, and a lot of them have little sisters. So we realized that we better get ready for a wave of little sister applicants. Um, so I think data is one of the biggest things that has allowed us to be so successful in our programming and to make tweaks and be flexible as we go along. Great. And uh, just on data and the use of data, what are some of the key challenges that you face in developing impact measurements, tools, and insights? Oh, gosh. Okay. Well, how long do you have? <laughs> um, so my first answer to that would be rural India. Um, you know, we have interns every summer, and I always tell them, you better have something you're working on, and you better have a plan B for when the power goes up, because that happens regularly. So just standard technology that you could depend on if you were working in a different context, you can't. Um, so that's a huge challenge is, oh, I'm getting my PowerPoint ready, but the power goes out for 36 hours. So uh, that's an issue. Another thing is the concept of data collection. Like I mentioned earlier, trying to do a Likert scale um, with some teachers I was working with, and they just, they'd never seen it, so they all said everything was great. Um, there's, there's also the issue of you're trying to overlay a very Western idea, like let's measure this, let's be very quantitative, um, let's be very empirical. You're trying to overlay that onto a culture where it doesn't always fit. Um, like we found that when we've gone out to interview scholars or their families, a bunch of foreigners or even um, our local staff showing up at their house with a camera is terrifying. Like they think they're in trouble. It's not something they've seen before. The idea that somebody would interview them and ask them for their opinions is just really far outside their worldview. So we've had to be really mindful about how we do data collection. Um, cultural sensitivity is one of our key values here. We're working in such a different culture that we have to remember that. But the short answer is the technology issue uh, and the cultural issue. But I do think that with the help of our amazing ground staff, we've been able to work around those and we are able to gather data. Mm -hmm. That's great to hear. And Nadubai has certainly accomplished a lot over the last decade plus. And so, you know, in thinking about the next five years to come, what are your main objectives and goals? Um, I think that our most achievable or most obvious goal is that we really want to increase our scholar numbers. Um, you know, we have about 160 girls in school right now, and we're going to add another 60 to 80 between Gujarat and Rajasthan. Um, but I would love us to be giving 
200 scholarships a year and to have offices in five states instead of in two states. Um, so there's, you know, the scaling up is important. Um, I also think that we are going to begin to develop more targeted programming to ensure that our scholars are graduating and not just graduating, but are going out into the workforce and being successful. Um, so those supporting programs to make sure that our overarching goals are met. Um, I know that we are also still in the thick of the Indian NGO registration process, which is incredibly lengthy and mountains and mountains and mountains of red tape. But once we have that, there's actually a law in India that corporations have to give a certain percent of their income to charities through corporate social responsibility. So once we complete our Indian NGO registration, we'll be able to start developing CSR relationships. And I'm really looking forward to that because I think that our goals and our message will resonate with a lot of organizations there and that that cash influx will help us do the scaling up that we we need to do. Wonderful. Thank you so much for uh, taking the time to participate in our Impact Series podcast. And, you know, we're really excited to continuing following Nadubai and the many exciting developments to come. Yeah, and thank you guys so much. I mean, besides the financial inputs from Giveology, um, just the personal relationships. I know we have a WhatsApp group, so some of the Givology Chicago members actually correspond pretty regularly with the scholars that they're supporting, and, you know, it's, it's beautiful to watch this sort of cultural exchange. So um, I'll speak on behalf of Kate, who it's a shame she has a sore throat because she is brilliant and has done so much for Nanubai, but um, on behalf of both of us, thank you guys so much. It's been great to speak with you today. Great. Thank you. Great.